Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, most of you have heard this famous phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's good news, and that's true. Got some bad news for you. Hell hates you and has a horrible, tragic plan for your life. And your response tips the balances on who wins the day in your life. You get to determine which is going to manifest in your life, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of hell, the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. And so... What I want to talk about is hell's purpose in suffering and how we can overcome it. I want to tie that in with uh, fasting, okay? So a, a number of years ago, we did a couple of, couple of series over the number of years, and then I've referred to it a number of times, but it's, it's really a teaching that we, it, it would take us four to five weeks to unpack, but what we called it was a theology of suffering. And where that came from is a young man had asked me one day, he said, Pastor Dave, do you have a theology of suffering? And I said, a theology of what? And he said, a theology of suffering. And I said, let me get back to you on that. And uh, I went to the Lord, and the Lord really began to speak to me on it. Uh, this a theology of suffering. And I'm not going to go into it. Matter of fact, I alluded to it in Wednesday night. But in reality, what, when we talk about that whole theology of suffering, one of the main things we need to realize is not all suffering is created equal. And so it should not be responded to by us equally. There's suffering that we embrace. There's suffering that we can avoid. But if we can't, we need to embrace. There's suffering that we absolutely need to reject and we are at war with. And then there's suffering we actually choose. We willingly pick it up for the kingdom's sake. And so we're not going to get into that this morning. But... The fact is, when you get into fasting, to really understand fasting, at least one of the facets of fasting, you cannot help but begin to bump into this whole idea of suffering again. Because I don't know about you, but it's suffering to me. You know, wah, wah, wah. You know, it's, it, I know I'm a wimp, but the fact is, it's voluntary suffering. So why do we do that? And I would propose to you this morning that in voluntary and volunteering for this type of suffering, we are confronting hell's purpose for suffering. We're confronting the dynamics of that and removing the ground by which the enemy begins to afflict our life. There are vulnerabilities of the human soul that set us up for failure at worst and at best set us up for just to be tormented by the enemy. And fasting can pull the rug out from underneath those things. And fasting also, it doesn't just confront hell's purpose for suffering and undermine his attempt to leverage suffering because fasting will not alleviate your suffering. Matter of fact, it'll produce a little more for the time of your fast. It may alleviate some of your suffering, but by and large, life, you're gonna suffer. 
And some of it is absolutely necessary for you to get where you need to go and me to get where I need to go. No pain, no gain. That is true in the kingdom as well as weightlifting. So fasting enables us to confront the enemy's purposes for suffering and pull the rug out from underneath them so we're no longer vulnerable to those purposes. But it also helps us to cooperate with heaven's purposes for suffering, and it enables us to facilitate that activity in our life. So when we talk about fasting, there are many dynamics, many facets, like a diamond. You can look at it from different angles and see different things. Fasting is a many splendored thing. It's, it is, it's, it's a, fasting and intercession are two of the greatest mysteries in the kingdom to me. Because at face value, they seem to contradict some of our, the main tenets of our faith. We're saved by grace. Well, then why do we fast? We've talked about that before, and I hope, hope we're all clear on that. But there's a mystery to this thing that me going without Taco Bell is going to reinforce the kingdom of God in his, human history? How does that work? Well, we need to understand that, and, and I, I still don't fully understand, and I'm going after this thing. I've been asking God these questions for decades, and I'm going to keep on asking because I want to understand. But I'm telling you, one facet of fasting, it's not the full thing, but one facet is suffering and confronting those issues God is trying to get at through suffering and removing the ground through which the enemy leverages our suffering. Does that make sense? So, I hope so, because I can't say that any clearer. So, that's what we're going to look at. Hell's purpose for suffering, and then how fasting confronts that. So, I'm just going to read you through some things. The purpose of hell for your suffering is really twofold. If he can't do the ultimate, he wants to at least get this other activity going in your life. So, he's at least attempting to distract you from the purposes of God in your life. Have you ever noticed when you make a fresh commitment, a man, you, you get a fresh touch, you're going to go at this thing in a, in a more determined way, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose in your life? Anybody ever experienced that? Am I the only one? It's like when you make that decision, I, I, I remember there was a young man I knew, I, I went to high school with him, he's, so I guess he's not so young, but uh, he's younger than me by two years, and uh, he started a, attending uh, our Atumwa church, and he said, man, it wasn't until I started going to church that all hell broke loose in my life. Everything was going great till I started going to church. Well, there was some hell that needed to break loose. There's some things that need to break loose in our life. And the enemy will leverage that process to get you so consumed with the, your own pain and your own your own stuff going on in your life that suddenly you forget about the commitment that led you into that. And I'm telling you that that, that upheaval, that disruption, that uprooting of, that, of the hell being unleashed on you, the breaking loose, is just a process and there is an end to it if you will keep your commitment. But often what happens is we make a new commitment. We get touched by God in a service. We get touched by God in a conference. We get prayed for. We get a new impartation. Whatever, you fill in the blanks. God speaks to you out of his word in a fresh way, and you know God's calling you higher. And you've made some 
new commitments and all of a sudden all hell breaks loose and you're so consumed with that that you forget about the commitment. And that is one of the primary purposes of suffering in your life from hell's perspective. You see, the suffering that hell uses and the suffering that hell, heaven uses is the same suffering. It's the same circumstance. Heaven doesn't have its own circumstances that it, it does, and then hell has their own circumstances. No, God's very practical. Whatever you're going through is raw material for him to get you where you're going. But you got to have the heart, right heart posture towards those things. So the enemy is at least trying to get you distracted. But the real jugular he's going for is he is trying to produce an offense with God. If he can get you, if, if when you enter into suffering, now that suffering may be uh, uh, initiated by hell. It may have been initiated by you. You may be, you know, suffering the consequences of your own bad decision. You ever been there? I have. I bought a van's one, van once. So let's not go into that. It, uh, there's, you know, there's, and it, it just, it may be that God has actually orchestrated some suffering for you to walk through. And let me just pause there. Those of us in the revival stream, We've got to be very, very careful that we have a theology for God allowing suffering in our life. Because we're in danger of ignoring vast swaths of scripture because they don't align with our theology. Well, where your theology doesn't align with scripture, your theology needs to humbly bow and submit to scripture. Now, there are very real truths, there's very real uh, concepts in scripture that give people reason to say then suffering can't be God's will. But then yet, those are found in scripture, and then you find this suffering in scripture. So you have got to find a way to reconcile those two. We don't have the liberty to cut certain verses out of the scripture and say, well, it doesn't fit with my theology, it must not be God. Sometimes the greatest revelation lies behind the conflict your last revelation produced. What I mean by that is, sometimes God will show you things and it becomes so real to you, you see it on every page, this thing has been grounded in your life and all of a sudden, you look at other scriptures and say, how in the world does this reconcile? And I'm telling you, when you find out how they reconcile, that will be a greater revelation than the initial one that caused the conflict. You know the old saying, X marks the spot? It's where your theology and the scripture contradict each other. There's the treasure. There are, there are nuggets. That's where the mysteries are found. And so... I got off on a tangent there, but let me just say, there are times, and I'm going to show you some troubling scriptures, but very comforting scriptures this morning that talk about God afflicting us. But like a good father, Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines those he loves. And if you are not disciplined, you are an illegitimate child. In other words, you're not really his. And so, being his child, 
means that he works in our life and at times he deals with it. And there's things he will do that we wouldn't have chosen. But if we realize the heart behind the hand that spanks us, we'll be comforted and we'll endure that process and it'll grow us up. And so what the enemy is trying to do, at least he tries to distract you, but what he really wants to do is offend you. And I'm gonna tell you, there are a lot of offended believers sitting in church pews all across the world this morning. They're offended with God. Offense is much more serious than distraction because distraction, once you get through that trial, you're no longer distracted, you jump right back in. But offense lasts long beyond the trial that produced it. And you take that into your walk with God. And we need to confront those things because that offense will keep us from trusting him and fully yielding ourselves to him. And so there's, there's a reason Jesus said, blessed are those who are not offended on account of me. Because when we see in part, when we look through a glass darkly, Sometimes God's activity doesn't make sense from our puny little perspective. Our little pea brain, and God is the creator of the universe who spans the universe with the stretch of one hand, keeps all things in orbit by his sovereign power. He knows a little more than we do. But it's hard to go through things where our experience seems to contradict what the word says about God. And you haven't served the Lord very long if you've never bumped into one of those situations. There's degrees of that. But when your trust is demanded most is when you step into the mystery. When it doesn't make sense. And you can still lift up your hands and say, Lord, I don't understand. I just know this, you are good. Man, we could preach a whole, we could spend a whole, uh, many services on that one attribute of God's character. I would propose to you the most crucial attribute of God's character for you to comprehend the foundation of everything else is a firm conviction in the goodness of God. And if God is not good, we don't have a gospel. Because the good news is not good if the God who delivered it is not good. A God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, he's everywhere present, you can't hide from him, he knows everything, he's all-powerful. If all of those attributes are not controlled by a good heart, we'd be in trouble. But he is good, and so that's what we hold on to. So, there, okay. heaven also has a purpose for your suffering, and when we realize this, we can cooperate with what God is doing. God's purpose in suffering is to purify our hearts and to grow us up. And you see this from the beginning in the garden. Not all suffering was the result of sin. Let me just let that settle in for a moment. Not all suffering 
was the result of sin. Now, we've got to define our terms. You might not be thinking in the same lines as I am, but suffering can be defined. The best definition I ever heard was having something you don't want and not having something you do want. That's what suffering is. You're in a situation. You wouldn't have choosed it, but you're stuck. And in that situation, you so desperately want something, and it's just not transpiring in your life. I'm not talking about bad things. I'm talking about good things. That's suffering. And in the, in the garden, God in his omniscient wisdom created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he made it to, uh, it looked good for food. It was desirable. God created it in such a way that it looked pleasurable to Adam and Eve. And he didn't put it in the corner of the garden or up on a big high mountaintop so they'd really have to try to get there and it'd take a lot of work. And he didn't put razor wire around it. He didn't put pit bulls guarding it and, guarding it and angels with AK-47s. He, it says he put it in the middle of the garden. Why would God do that? Because God wanted free sons and daughters. He wanted people to freely choose him. And the only way for you to grow morally, the only way for you to grow in your character is to make the right decisions. And as you make the right decisions, you grow in character. And when you refuse to make the right decisions, when you make the wrong decisions, you create bad character in your life. And God was calling his children. What God did, this, this can take us into a whole different area of theology, but it's really important. In, the, in uh, Genesis, I want to say it's chapter 2, verse 26. It says, let us make, God, God says, let us make man in our own image. In the image of him made he, him, male and female made he them. So God said, let us make man in his own image. I would propose that that making was a process. It wasn't an event. What I'm saying is Adam and Eve were not the finished product. He didn't just kind of mold Adam and Eve, you know, Adam out of dirt, put in a belly button, he's done. And then, you know, pull out his rib and then bring him a wife and say, this, they're done. That was the beginning and not the end. That was the, the raw material to get them where they needed to go. And you and I are still in that process and so the way to get there is God was going to give them opportunities to choose right. And in choosing, they would grow up into him. Without choice, you can't grow morally. You can't grow in your character. And we as parents need to remember that. That's what's going to stretch us and cause us to grow. Uh, Oswald Chambers, the guy that wrote... Uh, his utmost for my, my utmost for his highest, uh, his utmost for my highest. Um, anyway, he, he wrote in one of his books, he had this, this phrase, he was talking about innocence and purity. And it was a fascinating insight. He said, Jesus' innocence was not the innocence of our order of things. Jesus wasn't innocent like we were. We think of our kids, they're innocent, but innocent is not anything to brag about because it's never been tested, it's never been challenged. It's never been given the opportunity to do wrong. So innocence is not something to be bragged about. Purity is something to be 
proud of or just, you know, to feel like, I made it. Because purity has been challenged, confronted, given the opportunity to sin, and held to its morals, and come out through the fire of temptation, and came out the other side and still held to it. That man is pure. Adam and Eve were innocent, but they weren't pure. You see this theme all through Scripture. God takes us from, uh, well, Hebrews 12 says he's take, he's bringing us to holiness. James chapter one, he's, uh, I forget the term. Uh, Romans five says he's building character in us. Oh, uh, James one says maturity. uh, Yeah, so maturity, holiness, uh, sonship in Romans eight. All of these are giving us the same idea that God is bringing us towards something. He's doing a work in us. That's why in Hebrews chapter two, it says of Jesus, it says, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, put everything under his feet. It says, we see him suffering. It is fitting, this, this is how it says it. It is fitting that Jesus was suffering, made perfect through suffering. And then it goes on to talk, why was it fitting? The, the writer of the Hebrews doesn't define why it was fitting. He just says it was fitting. I'll tell you why. Because you and I are going to be made perfect through suffering. He said, it's fitting that the pioneer of their salvation. I'm sorry, my my mind is a little fuzzy this morning, so I'm having a problem remembering scriptures. So Hebrews chapter 2 says this. Jesus is the captain, the pioneer of our faith, and he was made perfect through suffering. And it was fitting that he would be made perfect through suffering. Why? Because he was the pioneer, the captain, he paved the way for us, and that's the way you and I will be made perfect. No pain, no gain. Now, even when we talk about this whole subject, understand there is a form of suffering that is not part of the deal. It's not part of God's will. It's from hell, and we are at war with it. Will God use it in the meantime until we get our breakthrough? Absolutely. God's very practical. I became a drug addict and a homeless alcoholic. Did God will that? No, but he sure used it. He's very practical. He used that process to grow me up once I turned my back on those things. And so there's a whole whole category of suffering, sickness, uh, mental illness, torment, oppression, all those things. That's not God's will. But there's other forms of suffering that are. We don't have time to walk you through the scriptures on these this morning. So you maybe look back on our podcast. We might have something on theology of suffering. So no pain, no gain. So we've got to go through these things to grow up. And that is God's methodology. He gives us opportunities to choose the right. And when we do, we grow and we begin to have character. And that process, we grow up into him. No pain, no gain. There is no way forward without that. It's that developmental suffering. And you see it way back in the garden. God confronted Adam and Eve's will before sin. The sin wasn't choosing wrong. But the opportunity and even the temptation, God tempts no man, but they were given a, an opportunity to choose the right and to continue to grow. 
They failed, took humanity off track, so that's why Jesus came as the second Adam and lived, went through the process of what the first Adam messed up. That's why Hebrews chapter two says, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Let's just pause there. I don't know about you, but that rattled my cage one day, about 35 years ago. How could Jesus be made perfect through suffering? Wasn't he born perfect? No. Jesus was not born perfect. I'm kind of messing with you by leaving pause there. Can mess with your head. Jesus was born innocent. He was born sinless. But perfection is different than sinlessness and innocence. The Greek word that is used throughout the New Testament for perfection is completed. That's why Jesus started as an innocent baby and was perfected by the things he suffered, Hebrews 2 says. And once made perfect, Philippians chapter 2 says, once made perfect, he had to be made perfect in order to become the source of eternal salvation. So once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus could not have paid for your full redemption had he not completed his walk. Remember Paul said, I have run the race. I've, you know, I've, I've finished the race. So did Jesus. The last leg of the race was this. Philippians chapter two, he once made perfect, or he, he, Jesus, once he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. And then it says that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The final act of submission. And then he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I'm gonna take a step over the cliff and plunge myself into eternal damnation in trusting you to redeem me. That's trust. And so Jesus became perfect and therefore became the source of our eternal salvation. There, theologically, I believe there's his innocence could take care of your past sins, but his perfection provided for your future lifestyle gives you the Strength to no longer sin again. So anyway, uh, so God, is, God, God wants to grow us up. So here's the catch for us this morning. What makes this subject immediately relevant? One facet of fasting, and this is only one, mind you, it is that that is volunteering for suffering to cooperate with heaven's purposes and confront hells. It is recognizing there is a work to do in us and we sign up freely. We need to have that mindset. We need to say, okay, God, I'm going to go into this time, this final week. I'm going into this, and I'm asking you, do a work in me. I want to get everything I can out of this. If I am going to skip burritos and brisket, I want to get something of eternal value out of such a, an enormous sacrifice. I'm just kidding. Out of such a sacrifice. So uh, it's an opportunity to, for us to uproot all our vulnerabilities. So... Suffering, number one, confronts the selfishness which makes us vulnerable. See if I can make sense of this. We don't know how selfish we are until our desires are thwarted. You know that? 
Anybody ever seen Lord of the Rings? And uh, I, I forget the name of the little guy, and Fro- he gave Frodo the ring, and he goes to give it back to, he said, I want to see it, and he won't give it to him, and this gentle little old man becomes a demon for a minute, and then comes, <laughs> that's some of us in fasting with food. <laughs> I remember one time, I'm so embarrassed, but I, I was fasting, I was doing a 21-day fast on uh, smoothies. And uh, so I had this frozen fruit, and every night I'd come home and drink a smoothie, and uh, my wife had fed some to the kids. And I was like, what? That's all I have! And I, uh, oh my, <laughs> I'm going to go pray. <laughs> Seriously, it was, it was very disturbing what came out of me. Oh my goodness. If our main priority is our own comfort, we are terribly susceptible to the enemy. He recognizes this, recognizes this, and he will target our idols. When life is all about us, we're, we're extremely vulnerable to the enemy. Dan Muller used to say it this way, if you're touchy, you'll get touched. It's that simple. You got an area of your life where you're touchy? Hey, get ready. The enemy's going to touch you. And here's the thing. We don't know the areas where we're touchy, until we thwart our own desires for a while. You know, we, we, we talked about it before, put it on a video, I put it on a post on Facebook, but that whole thing of the worms in the belly, you know. I'm telling you, what, what laid undetected while fed manifests itself when it was starving. It came crawling up his throat. Ooh, that'll, that'll cure you from wanting to eat right there. Okay, I, I can go another week now, right? Just from that story. When we coddle ourselves and prioritize our own desires for comfort, we actually invite demonic attack in the future. Let me, let me say it again. When we coddle ourselves and prioritize our own desire for comfort, we actually invite demonic attack in the future. Now that's, hey, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. There's nothing wrong, but when you're, you coddle yourself and that takes precedence over your obedience, over sacrifice, over acting maturely and responsible and serving others and serving the kingdom of God, you have a problem. The moment we are inspired to pursue God with all our hearts, the enemy will touch us in those areas that we've withheld from God. So the fact is the areas that you withhold from God become your greatest vulnerabilities. They become a welcome mat to hell's activity in your life. Fasting actually attacks this mentality, going to the root of the issue. Suffering has the ability to either deepen our commitment to ourself or to sever us from that selfishness. When our priority is us, suffering can cause us to sink into self-pity when we go through trials. We take on a victim mentality and we become offended by God. And suffering says, I'm going to get ahead of the game. I'm not going to wait for some circumstance to come to me so that I can confront this thing in my life. I'm going to choose to put some suffering in my life, some self-denial, and I'm going to confront that thing, and I'm going to begin to pull up. I love how A.W. Tozer called it. In one of his books, he, he, refer, he used this phrase, and I'll never forget it. That tough, fibrous root of self. Isn't that a vivid picture that I can relate with? That tough, Fibrous root of self. Fasting says, I'm going to get ahead of the game and I'm just going to confront this thing right out. 
I'm not going to wait for some circumstance to make it necessary. I'm going to be ready when that circumstance comes by living a life of self-denial and occasional fasting, and I'm going to do this thing so I can confront that thing. So, not only does does, uh, fasting... Suffering has the ability to either deepen our commitment to ourself or sever us from that self selfishness. Suffering has the ability to sever us from our selfishness, and this is how it happens. We divorce ourselves from our idols out of love for God. The real key to living a life of self-denial and self-control is loving something more than the things you the idols you used to bow to. Jesus said it very clearly. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. He's saying the real test of your, the measure of your love is the measure of your holiness and your obedience. I'll meet people that are, you know, jamming a needle in their arm and robbing their grandma, and they'll say, but I, I've always loved God. I'm sorry to tell you that you haven't. You may have a deep affection and an affinity for God, but you don't have love for God according to his word. Now, God's inviting you into that, and here's the key. How do you get there? Okay, if the love of God is the secret to obedience, how do I get the love? Do I just white-knuckle it? No. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. What you need is a revelation of his love for you. And when you see the magnitude of his love for you, you can't help but love him back. So we need to pray for that revelation in our own lives and the lives of those we love. So we divorce ourselves from our idols out of love for God. When the fiery trials begin to burn around us, our heart begins to cling to him more. You see, the irony is that the same trials, the same fiery trials that will cause some to go off into la-la land and get offended with God, cause other people to be more in love with Jesus than ever. They'll have a deeper commitment. Their their heart is tenderized towards the Lord. It's because in that moment, they chose the direction they're going to go. They've held tight to that doctrine. God is good. In our cries for deliverance, we get to know him more. The trial actually pushes us towards him. And the reward of those fiery seasons is the intimacy established in it. I have never been through a severe trial without coming out with a greater appreciation for who God is. And like many of you, I've been through some things. And I'm telling you, if we make the right decisions in those moments, you will walk out with a revelation of, because God makes this promise, he is near the brokenhearted. In the midst of the fire, he is more accessible to you than at other times. He's, gonna, he, he's near you. There's a, there's a nearness that he will allow you to enter into if you'll make those decisions. And you'll come out with something. And, and I, I can say, living the 30 years I've been alive, and some others, I'm not saying that was my whole life, living all these years uh, and looking back, every trial I've been through, I can look back and what I got out of God, it was worth it. It was worth going through it. I can't lose. You know what the good news is as believers? 
This is the only hell we'll ever know. This is as bad as it gets, guys. This is the only hell we'll ever know. And the tragedy for the unbeliever is this is the only heaven they'll ever know. Unless they get right with God. So, number two. Suffering clarifies values. Oh my goodness, I got to move quickly here. In times of suffering and loss, our value system changes. Things which seem so important now move to the shadows. Things we neglected for temporary satisfaction suddenly become supreme. Suffering has a way of producing that perspective. The things we once thought were so important are recognized for their true value. Uh, I know many of you have been through those situations. Maybe you have a loved one and you're not sure you're going to lose them. And all of a sudden... The things you were, that seem so important just don't even matter anymore. It, it kind of clarifies things. And it is a fact that most of us are too easily distracted during the good times. Let me read that again, painful as it is. It is a fact that most of us are too easily distracted during the good times. That matter of fact, uh, trials in our life and coming out on the other side because of what we're going to talk about next what it will do is it will, it will create the character that can handle the blessings of God. God's a really good father. He's not indulgent in the sense of giving you things you can't handle. What he wants to do, he wants to give you those things. He wants you to live blessed. But in order to give them to you, he needs to make sure you can handle them. And in order for you to handle them, you've got to go through that maturity process so that you can steward it once it get, you have it. And so most of us, because of there, there's a tendency when in prosperity to forget about him. God alludes to this in Deuteronomy. He says, when you enter the promised land and you prosper and you forget me, as, as if it was a foregone conclusion. Now we, don't know, we know that is not a foregone conclusion because there are many people extremely blessed financially that live wholehearted for God. There are billionaires in the earth that live wholehearted for God. I, I have a friend that uh, has an amazing ministry and he was telling me, he was with a guy recently and uh, he was multi, multi-millionaire, uh, tens of millions of dollars and the Lord said, give it all away. So he did. He just wrote checks and gave it to all these ministries and then he was broke. And then he started getting phone calls because there were some outstanding issues and uh, but he just said, God told me, he just obeyed. And it, well, my friend was there, he said, I want to show you how to operate in the kingdom. He made a phone call that morning and he gave a jet away. So you, I already blew up the story because he's already wealthy again. He gave a jet away. He said, by the end of the day, we're sitting in that room and someone called and gave him a better one. Now, some of you squirm about that. Oh, that's our prosperity gospel. I'm telling you, there is a place in finance that is miraculous. I told someone the other day, they, they had asked me about Dave Ramsey. And Dave Ramsey's stuff is great. As a matter of fact, you could look at it this way. Dave Ramsey's teaching on finance is like the fruit of the spirit. It's character. It's discipline. It's living. It's making the right decisions. But there's a place in God where there's also a place for the gifts of the spirit in finance. Where you can touch the miraculous and that you learn the laws of the kingdom in sowing and reaping and giving. And I'm not talking about, yes, that there's times where those things have been abused and preachers have gotten up and said, you know, if you'll give, if you'll give $1,000 today, I guarantee you a hundredfold blessing and all that. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about you for yourself, digging in the word and understanding and getting a hold of teachings that really make sense and learn to believe for the miraculous in finance. I, 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 a number of years ago, I, I heard Mike Bickle say this and it really challenged me. He said, he said, we understand the necessity to go after signs and wonders, miracles, healings as a movement as a prayer movement, and, and I would consider us part of that. We're, a, we're, a, you know, we're, we're recipients and a tributary of that whole movement. He said, but what we need to understand is there's, equal, there's an equal necessity for us to go after miracles of finance, and we've not tapped into that. The word of faith movement did. Some went off, and some have become balanced, and some have gone away from it, but I'm telling you, there is a place in God for miracle and finance. This guy that uh, I was telling you about what happened, a gentleman called him and said, I've got, uh, a guy said, the Lord told me, he spoke to me and told me to give you some land in South Africa. Told me to give it to you. He said, okay, I'll take it. He went out there, it was just a pile of rocks. Nothing. And he began to pray over it and uh, Lo and behold, they mined it, and it's one of the largest, most profitable diamond mines in the world. He's multi, multi-millionaire again. But God can trust him and trust him because he can trust him. And so, I don't know how we got off on that. But, um, okay, when the severity of suffering grows and we continue to put our eyes on God, commitment is established. I want you to understand this. Commitment is established then. There are things that are jettisoned that were previously held onto. A holy resolve forms and a decision is made that God is the supreme pursuit. Or those same things are temporarily forgotten as we sink into a soup of self-pity and offense. Okay, and this is directly connected to what I just said. Number three, it crystallizes the commitments into, crystallizes commitments into character. Suffering has a way of taking our commitments, which are mere intentions, and forming those into real life character. Words are cheap. How, do, how does that become, those words translate into reality? You can be as sincere as sincere can be, but it's still just theory until you go through some things and you have to prove that thing with your decisions and your lifestyle. And so suffering has an ability to do that. It is suffering that commitment, it is, it is in suffering that commitment crystallizes into character. Without this, commitments remain empty words regardless of how sincere they were. Fasting is a way to strike at that tough fibrous root of self. It confronts our old our old idol of comfort, it volunteers for temporary denial, suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God. We choose God over our natural desires and in so doing, it establishes a deeper commitment. I don't know about you, but there are times where I've said, I'm committed to this thing. And all of a sudden, I'm confronted with the opportunity to hold the ground, but it's gonna cost me something. And I waver. What that tells me is, oh, I wasn't as committed as I thought. And I have to recount the cost. And I embraced, I embraced the cost of that thing. And I'm telling you, that's when it becomes character. And suffering has a way to do that. Suffering will establish that in your life. It gives you the opportunities to, to prove what's really in your heart. Number four, 
uh, it secures ground over, the, over which we'll then have authority. When you go through suffering, it will secure ground in the spiritual realm. We don't have time to go into that one this morning. Uh, but suffering is actually a way in which we can enter this process voluntarily. There are a number of facets to fasting, purposes which are accomplished through this discipline. But one of them is this voluntary embracing of suffering to confront the vulnerabilities. What I'm saying is this, that if you, if you have these things you withhold from God, you may not even know you've withheld them from God until he puts his finger on it and demands it. But the areas that you withhold from him are the very areas the enemy can occupy. And he can push on those things. He, or 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Christ suffered in his body. Arm yourselves also with that same attitude. For he who suffers in his body is done with sin. That's an amazing statement. We can't afford to just read over that. We need to hear what he's saying. He says, Christ suffered in his body. Jesus embraced suffering. He went through some things. He had a certain attitude towards pain. He didn't let it move him off the path. Because the way of the enemy is, you're at point A, God wants you to take you point B, there's a pathway to get there, and the enemy will leverage pain either in promising you something you don't have or imposing something you don't want on you. And the, the whole objective is to, if not getting you offended to get off the path, at least distract you from the path so you don't continue on. But Jesus had a certain mindset towards pain and suffering. So then Peter says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. The attitude that Jesus had towards pain is an armor of defense that if we wear it, we will no longer sin. Tony, when I saw this verse, finally addictions made sense to me. I worked for 14 years working with drug addicts at Teen Challenge, but I never understood, I was one, I never understood addictions like I did when I read that verse. It says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who suffers in his body is done with sin. Wow. How many of you no longer sin? Okay, I'm relieved. I'd have to have a talk with you because the Bible also says if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. But I'm telling you, if you embrace the suffering in that given area, you will be done with sin in that area. The way to undermine addiction, the way to undermine the enemy is to say, I am willing to face the pain in this area. Addiction, sin, same thing, okay? Addiction and sin are the same thing. The nature of sin is flight from pain. And if we're willing to embrace the pain, we will be free. The only hold the enemy has on you are those areas of your heart you're withholding from God. So confront your pain. A lot of times it's past pain, childhood pain, trauma, rejection, deep disappointment, 
bitterness towards being treated wrongly. Make, you know, go on with your list. But if we'll face that pain of our past, we will undermine the very thing that the enemy used to push on us to get us to sin. Sometimes it's present pain. We're going through something and that it's just that easy way to anesthetize ourselves by just going out and numbing ourselves in some wrong activity. And it might not even be wrong in and of itself, but it's wrong for you because you're using it to escape reality. And God is calling you to live in reality and conquer this thing. And so what I'm saying is this, that fasting is a way for you to say on the front end, okay, God, I'm signing up for this thing. I'm going to go into this season. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to expose that tough, fibrous root of self. And I'm asking you, deal with me. Lord, I want to choose you. I want to get on the front end of this thing. I choose self-denial. As you begin to deal with yourself in that area, you begin to gain the character and the strength to deal with it in other areas. Unless you have physical problems, medical issues, fasting won't kill you. It'll just feel like it does. But it will do a deep work in you and character, okay? I hope that made sense. Father, we just thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I'm asking God that you would take your word this morning and just take it deep. Lord, you know those root issues that we need to deal with. You know what each and every one of us needed to deal with individually, what applies and what doesn't. And so Lord, as the master teacher, I pray that you would take and put your finger on our heart. And Lord, grow us up. Help us to cooperate with heaven's purposes. With every head bowed, if you're here this morning and you need to surrender to the Lord, it might be something you've done before. It might be something you've never done. It might be that you just wandered away, but you're saying, hey, I need to get saved. I need to, I need to surrender to Jesus. I want you to raise your hand right now. We want to pray with you. If you need to get right with God, I'm telling you, it's the first step in the right direction in your life. God wants to deliver you from all those things. And every one of us has them. All right, I just want to make sure. I don't want to lose that opportunity if you need to get right with God. Give you a couple more seconds, anybody. All right, Father, we just thank you for this week, God. Pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord, as we go through the rest of this week and this fast. And Lord, do your work. We want to milk it for all it's worth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give. 